In your book, you have you have a chapter on science, which is one of my favorites. And in that chapter, the title of that chapter is is one of my favorites. I think it's called The Discovery of Ignorance. And the idea that science began when people discovered that, that there was ignorance and that, uh, that they could do something about it. Uh, uh, this was really the beginning of science. I love that phrase. And in fact, I love that phrase so much that I went and I looked it up because I thought, where did he get it? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and you get, you know, the, I, did find, I did find that phrase when I Googled it and it, all the references were to you. So, uh, and there are many other things like that in the book. How did you transition from that book to what you're doing now? Um, it came naturally. I mean, what I'm doing now, uh, my big question that at present is what is the human agenda for the 21st century? And I think this is a direct continuation from covering the history of humankind uh, from the appearance of Homo sapiens until today. So when you finish that, immediately you think, okay, what next? And then the question is, it's not, I'm not trying to predict the future. I think it's impossible to predict the future now more than ever. We, nobody has a clue how the world would look like in, say, 40, 50 years. We may know some of the basic variables but to give an actual prediction, if you really understand what's going on in the world, you know that it's impossible to have any good prediction for, say, the coming decade. And this is for the first time in history that we're in this situation. So I'm not trying to predict the future. I'm trying to do maybe something which is the opposite. I'm trying to identify what are the possibilities, what, what is the horizon of possibilities that we are facing, and uh, what will happen from among these possibilities, uh, I think we, we, we still have a lot of choice with regard to that. Could you elaborate on these possibilities? I mean, what is, what is the range, or what's the distinction between uh, predicting and setting up a range of possibilities? Um, predicting, and, and this is generally in, in science, you can get it in all disciplines that... Um, I, th I, I think about it in visual terms, whether you try to narrow your field of vision or to, or to broaden it. Sometimes, like, you try to predict the weather for tomorrow, so it could be, there is a lot of possibilities to begin with. It might rain, it might snow, it might be sunshine, and a good meteor meteorologist, according to one view of science, is a meteorologist that takes this horizon of possibilities and narrows it down to a single possibility, or just two possibilities. It will certainly rain, maybe hard, maybe less so. That's it. And after you finish reading the book or taking the course or whatever, your view of the world in this sense is narrower because you have fewer possibilities to consider. You know, it's going to rain. And the opposite, and you can see it in, in economics, in medicine, and also in history, when people try to say, okay, what will happen next? You have all these possibilities, and I'm telling you China is going to be the superpower. End of story. You, you, you narrow down the range. And I like, I think there is room, of course, for that. When I go to the doctor to get a medicine, I want him to narrow down the possibilities, not just to enumerate all, all, all the options. But I personally like the kind of science that broadens the horizons. I often tell my students at university that my aim is that after three years, you basically know less than when you first got here. When you first got here, you thought you knew 
what the world is like and what is war and what is a, a state and, and, and so forth. After three years, my hope is that you will understand that you actually know far, far, far less and you come out with a much broader view of the present and of the future. But you, you get to a broader view by becoming more differentiated, that is, by having more detailed views, or is it just that you get people to consider possibility that wouldn't occur to them? Mainly the second, uh, the second way, that uh, the main thing, and, and, and uh, my main task, I think, as a historian, is to get people to consider possibilities which are usually outside their field of vision. Because I think that our present field of vision has been shaped by history and has been narrowed down by history. And if you understand how history has narrowed down our field of vision, this is what enables you, I think, to start broadening it. Uh, to give just a, an example, which I'm, I'm thinking about a lot today, concerning the uh, future of humankind in the field of medicine. Um, at least to the best of my understanding, we are in the middle of a revolution in medicine that after medicine in the 20th century focused on healing the sick, now it is more and more focused on upgrading the health, which is a completely different project. And uh, it's a fundamentally different project in, in, in social and political terms because whereas healing the sick is an egalitarian project, you assume there is a norm of health. Anybody that falls below the norm, you try to give him a push or to give her a push to come back to the norm. Upgrading is by definition an elitist project, and there is no norm that can be apl applicable to everybody. And this opens the possibility of creating huge gaps between the rich and the poor bigger than ever existed before in history. And many people say, no, it, it will not happen because we have the experience from the 20th century that we had many medical advances beginning with the rich or with the most advanced countries and gradually they trickled down to everybody and now everybody enjoys antibiotics or vaccinations or, or whatever, so this will happen again. And as a historian, I think my main task is to say, no, there were, particular, there were peculiar reasons why medicine in the 20th century was egalitarian, why the discoveries trickled down to everybody. These unique conditions may not repeat themselves in the 21st century, so you should broaden your thinking and you should take into consideration the possibility that medicine in the 21st century will be elitist and that you will see growing gaps because of that, biological gaps between rich and poor and between different countries. And you cannot just trust a, a, a process of trickling down to, to solve this problem. And I think there are fundamental reasons why, um, uh, why we should take this very seriously because generally speaking, when you look at the 20th century, it's the era of the masses. And mass politics, mass economics, every human being has value, has political, economic, and military value, simply because he or she is a human being. And this goes back, I think, to the structures of the military and of, uh, of the economy, that every human being is valuable as a soldier in the trenches, and as a worker, <coughs> sorry, as a worker in the factory. But in the 21st century, 
there is a good chance that most humans will lose, they are losing their military and economic value. In the military, it's done, it's over. The age of the masses is over. Uh, We are no longer in the First World War. We we take millions of soldiers, give each one a a rifle and, and, and run forward. And the same thing perhaps is happening in the economy. Maybe the biggest question, I think, of 21st century economics is what will you need people for, or most people for, in 2050 in the economy? And once people are no longer really necessary, most people, for the military and for the economy, the idea that you will continue to have mass medicine is not so certain. Could be, I'm not saying it's it's not a prophecy, but you should take very seriously the the option that people will lose their military and economic value and medicine will follow. uh, You you seem to be describing this as something that is already happening. are you referring to developments such as the Google, you know, the, the plans to do away with debt? Then if that that yeah. certainly would not be a mass project. Mm-hmm. But uh, could you elaborate on that? Um, yes, uh, I, I think that um, the attitude now towards disease and old age, old age and death is that they are basically technical problems, which sounds acceptable, except that this is a huge revolution in human thinking. Well, throughout history, the old age and death were always treated as metaphysical problems, as something that the gods decreed, as something fundamental to do what defines humans, what defines the human condition reality. And even a few years ago, very few doctors or scientists would say seriously that they are trying to overcome old age and death. They would say, no, I'm trying to overcome this particular disease, whether it's tuberculosis or cancer or Alzheimer, defeating old age and death, this is nonsense, this is science fiction. But um, the new attitude, I think, is to treat old age and death as technical problems, no different in essence than any other uh, uh, disease. It's like cancer, it's like Alzheimer's, it's like tuberculosis. Maybe we still don't know all the mechanisms and all the remedies, but in principle, people always die for one reason and one reason only, and then these are technical reasons, not metaphysical reasons. In the Middle Ages, you had this image that how does a person die? Suddenly, the angel of death appears, and touches you on the shoulder and says, come, your time has come. And you say, no, 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 give me some more time. And they say, no, you have to come, and that's it. This is how you die. And today we don't think like that. People never die because the angel of death comes. They die because the heart stops uh, pumping, or because an artery is clogged, or because cancerous cells are spreading in the liver or, or somewhere. These are all technical problems. And in essence, they should have some technical solution. And this way of thinking, I think, is now becoming very dominant in scientific circles and also among the ultra-rich. They are understanding, wait a minute, something is happening here. For the first time in history, if I'm rich enough, maybe I don't have to die. That is optional. That is, 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 is optional. Again, and if you think about it from the viewpoint of the poor, it looks terrible because throughout history, death was the great equalizer. 
the big consolation of the poor throughout history was that, okay, these rich people, they have it good, but they are going to die just like me. But think about a world, say, in 50 years, 100 years, where the poor people continue to die, but the rich people, in addition to all the other things they get, they also get an exemption from death. That's going to bring a lot of anger. Yeah. Uh, I really like that phrase of people not being necessary. Can you elaborate on this dystopia? I mean, it's a, mm. I, it's a new phrase for me. Uh, you know, I've been... Those things, by the way, develop very, very slowly. I, mean, my, uh, I was worrying about, about what would happen, what computers would do in displacing people. I was worrying about this when I was a graduate student, and that was more than 50 years ago, and I thought that's a very serious immediate problem. It wasn't a serious immediate problem then, mm -hmm. but it, it may be a, a serious, not immediate, but it may be a serious problem now. Uh, you have thought about it deeply. Can you... Tell us about people becoming unnecessary economically and unnecessary militarily. What will that do? Well, I think the basic uh, process is the decoupling of intelligence from consciousness. Uh, throughout history, you always had the two going together. If you wanted something intelligent, this, this something had to have consciousness at its basis. Uh, people did not, were not familiar with anything that could be intelligent, that could solve problems like playing chess or driving a car or diagnosing disease that didn't have consciousness, which, which wasn't human. Now, what we are talking about today is not that computers will be like humans. I think that many of these science fiction scenarios that computers will be like humans they are wrong. Computers are very, very, very far from being like humans, especially when it comes to consciousness. The problem is different, that the system, the military and economic and political system, doesn't really need consciousness. It the needs just intelligence. Yeah. And intelligence is, is, is a far easier thing than consciousness. And the problem is, computers may not become conscious, I don't know, ever, or let's say 500 years, but they could be as intelligent or more intelligent than humans in particular tasks very quickly. And if you think, for example, about the self-driving car of Google, and you compare the self-driving car to a taxi driver, a taxi driver is immensely more complex than the self-driving car. There are a zillion things that the taxi driver can do and that self-driving car cannot. But the problem is that from a purely economic perspective, we don't need all the zillion things that a taxi driver can do. I only need him to take me from point A to point B as quickly and as cheaply as possible. And this is something that a self-driving car can do better, or will be able to do better very quickly. And when you look at more and more, most of the tasks that humans are needed for, what, are, what is required is just intelligence and a very particular type of intelligence because we are undergoing for, for thousands of years a process of specialization which makes it easier to replace us. To build a robot which could function effectively as a hunter-gatherer is extremely complex. You need to know so many different things. But to build a self-driving car or to build a, a Watson bot that can diagnose disease better than my doctor, this is relatively easy. 
And this is where, where I think we have to be, uh, uh, to take it seriously. The possibility that even though computers uh, will still be far behind humans in many different things, as far as the tasks that the system needs for us are concerned, most of them computers will be able to do better than us. And again, I, I don't want to give a prediction, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years, but what you do see is it's, it's a bit like the boy who cried wolf. That, yes, you cry wolf once, twice, three times, and maybe people say, yes, 50 years ago they already predicted that computers will replace humans, and it didn't happen. But the thing is that with every generation, it is becoming closer. And these predictions themselves fuel the process. I think it will happen the same thing with these uh, promises to overcome death. Uh, my guess, which is only a guess, is that the people who live today and who count on uh, the ability to live forever or to overcome death in, in 50 years, 60 years, it's going to be a huge disappointment. It's one thing to accept that I'm going to die. It's another thing to think that you can cheat death and, and then die uh, eventually. It's, it's much harder. And I think they are in for a very big disappointment. But in their efforts to defeat death, they will achieve great things. They will uh, make it easier for the next generation to, to, to do it. And somewhere along the line, it will turn from uh, science fiction to science. And uh, the wolf will come. Uh, what you're doing here in terms of prediction, which is in a way, I mean, that, those are predictions you can make. I mean, the, the, trend, mm -hmm. uh, the, the trend is clear what progress uh, means is clear. But what you're describing when you describe people as superfluous, uh, you are presenting the background for a huge problem. I mean, you know, who decides what to do with this with these superfluous people, especially, I mean, how, what are the social implications that you see of, of the technological development that you foresee? No, obviously, nobody's talking about living to be 300 with the body of a 300 year old no, man, maybe the body of a 30 year old man, at yeah. 300. I mean, uh, otherwise, nobody's signing up to this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but have you thought about the possible? I mean, the social, ethical, philosophical... Uh, as a, again, as a historian, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a computer scientist, I'm not in a position to say whether all these uh, ideas are realizable or not. I can just look from the side as a historian and, 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 uh, and say what it looks from, from, from there. Uh, so the social and philosophical and political uh, implications are the things that interest me most. Um, Basically, if, if any of these trends is going to actually uh, 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 fulfill itself, then uh, the best I can do is quote for Marx and say that everything, everything solid melts into air. Once you really solve a problem like direct brain-computer interface, when brains and computers can interact directly, uh, for example, to take just one example, that's it. That's the end of history. That's the end of biology as we know it. Nobody has a clue once what, what will happen once you, once you solve this. Uh, if life can basically break out of the organic realm into the vastness of the inorganic realm, and 
you cannot even begin to imagine what the consequences will be because your, our imagination at present is organic. So it's, um, if there is a point of singularity, as it's often referred to, by definition, we have no way of even ima starting to imagine what's happening beyond that. Um, looking before the point of singularity, just as the trend is, is gathering pace, uh, one thing I think we, we can say is uh, maybe a repeat of what happened in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution, of the opening of huge gaps between different classes and different countries. If in the 20th century, generally speaking, the 20th century was a century of closing gaps, fewer gaps between classes, between genders, between ethnic groups, between countries, so we will see, and maybe we are starting to see, the reopening of these gaps with a vengeance. So gaps will be, will be far greater than were between the industrialized and the non-industrialized part of the world uh, 150 or 200 years ago. In the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century, what humanity basically learned to produce was all kinds of stuff, like textiles and shoes and weapons and, and vehicles. And this was enough for very few countries that underwent the revolution fast enough to subjugate everybody else. What we're talking about now is like a second industrial revolution, but the product this time will not be textiles or machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product this time will be humans themselves. We are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to be, I think, the two main products of the next wave of all these uh, changes. And if there is a gap between those that know to produce bodies and minds and those that do not, then this is far greater than anything we saw before in, in history. And this time, if you're not part of the revolution fast enough, then you probably become, become extinct. With the Industrial Revolution, countries like China, they missed the train, but 150 years later, they somehow managed to catch up, largely thanks to the power of cheap labor, to speak in, in economic terms. Uh, now, uh, those who will miss the train, I think they'll never get a second chance. If a country, if uh, people today are left behind, they will never get a second chance, especially be because they will, cheap labor would count for nothing. Once you know how to produce bodies and brains and minds, so cheap labor in Africa or South Asia or wherever, it, it simply counts for nothing. So in, in, in political terms, in ge geopolitical terms, I think we might see a repeat of the 19th century, but in, in a much larger scale. But what I find difficult to imagine is in, on the way there, uh, as people are becoming unnecessary, the translation of that in sort of 20th century terms is mass unemployment. Mm -hmm. Mass unemployment means social unrest. Uh, it means there are things going to happen, processes going to happen in society that as a result of people becoming superfluous. And that is a gradual process, mm -hmm. people becoming superfluous. We may be seeing that in the growing inequality now. We may be seeing the beginning mm -hmm. of what you're talking about. But have you thought of 
in, in the same way as you're thinking in interesting and novel ways about technology, have you thought about the social side? Yes, I think that the social side is, is the more important and more difficult one. I don't have a solution. I, I, again, I think that the biggest question, in, in maybe in economics and politics of the coming decades, will be what to do with all these useless people. I don't think we have an economic model to, for that. My best guess, which is just a guess, is that uh, food will not be a problem. Uh, with that kind of technology, you will be able to produce food for, to feed everybody. The problem is more uh, boredom and how, what to do with them and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless. My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games as a solution for more. It's already happening. Uh, in, 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 in under different titles, different headings, you see more and more people spending more and more time or uh, uh, solving their inner problems with uh, uh, drugs and computer games, both legal drugs and illegal drugs. And, and this is just a, a wild guess. Um, what I, I can say is that maybe we are, again, in an analogous position to the world in 1800, when the Industrial Revolution begins, you see the emergence of new classes of people. You see the emergence of a new class of the urban proletariat, which is a new social and political phenomenon. Nobody knows what, what to do with it. There are immense problems. And uh, it took a century and more of revolutions and wars and, and so forth for people to even start coming up with ideas what to do with, uh, with, the, new class of, with the new classes of people. What is certain is that the old answers were irrelevant. You had people just as like today, everybody talking about now ISIS and the Islamic fundamentalism and, and Christian revival and things like that. People try to look for, there is a new, a new problem, people go back to the ancient texts and think that there is an answer in the Sharia, in the Quran, in the Bible. We had the same thing in the, in the 19th century also. You had the Industrial Revolution, you had huge social, political problems all over the world as a result of industrialization, of modernization. You got lots of people thinking that the answer is in the Bible or in the Quran. You had religious movements all over the world. Uh, in the Sudan, for example, you have the Mahdi establishing a Muslim theocracy according to the Sharia. An Anglo-Egyptian army comes to suppress the rebellion. They defeat it. They cut off, they behead the head of General Charles Gordon. Basically the same thing that you are now seeing with ISIS. Nobody remembers the Mahdi today because the answers that he found in the Quran and the Sharia to the problem of industrialization didn't work. In China, the, the, the biggest war of the 19th century is not the Napoleonic War, it's not the American Civil War, it's the Taiping Rebellion in China, which started in 1850 when you had this failed scholar called Hong Xuxuan, if I remember correctly, who had a vision from God that he, Hong, is the younger brother of Jesus Christ, and he had a divine mission to establish the kingdom of heavenly peace on earth and to solve all the problems of China with the coming of the British and all that. And he started a rebellion, and millions followed him. According to the most moderate estimates, 20 million people were killed in the Taiping Rebellion, 14 years and until they suppressed it. And he didn't establish a kingdom of heavenly peace, and he didn't solve the problems of industrialization. 
Eventually, you got people like Marx and Engels who came up with new ideas, not from the Sharia, not from the Bible, not from some vision. They studied industry. They studied coal mines. They studied electricity. They studied steam engines, railroads. How do these transform the economy and society? And they came up with some new ideas. Not necessarily everybody likes the new ideas, but it was something at least to argue against. And I think that looking from the perspective of 2015, I don't think we now have the knowledge to solve the social problems of 2050. This is the problems that will emerge as a result of all these new developments, but we should, um, we should focus to start seeing these processes and the problems emerging, and we should be looking for new knowledge and new solutions, and starting with the realization that in all probability, nothing that exists at present offers a solution to these problems. What is very interesting and frightening about, about the scenario is it is true, as you point out, I mean, uh, that, that people have lived to work uh, or work to live. And, and what, what you are describing is a scenario in which work is unnecessary for most people. Mm-hmm. And there is a class of people who work because they enjoy it and, and are able to do it. And then there is most of humanity for, for which work no longer exists. But that mass of people who cannot work, they can still kill people. Mm. And how, how, do you see, how do you see the possibility of strife and conflict mm. between the superfluous people and those who are not? I think once you're superfluous, you don't have power. Uh, again, we are used to the age of the masses of the 19th and 20th century, where you, all, where you, where you saw all these successful, uh, massive uprisings, revolutions, revolts. So we, we, got, we are used to thinking about the masses as powerful. But this is basically a 19th century, a 20th century phenomenon. If you go back in most periods in history, say to the Middle Ages, you do see peasant uprisings, they all fail. Uh, because the masses were not powerful. And once you become superfluous militarily and economically, you can still cause trouble, of course, but I don't think you have the power to really change things. And um, it's not like... Also, once you have this revolution in the military, which we are undergoing, in which the number of soldiers simply becomes irrelevant in comparison with uh, factors like technology. And with, with, uh, you, you still need people, but you don't need the millions of soldiers, each with a rifle. You need much smaller numbers of experts who know how to produce and how to use uh, the new technologies. And against such uh, military uh, powers, I don't think that the masses, even if they, they somehow organize themselves, uh, stand much of a chance. We are not in, in, in Russia of 1917 or in, uh, uh, or in 19th century Europe. Um, so, again, it's, it's not a prophecy. Maybe it will turn out differently. 
But as a historian, I, I think the most important thing to realize is that the power of the masses that we are so used to is rooted in particular historical conditions, economic, military, political, which characterize the 19th and 20th century. These conditions are now changing, and there is no reason to be certain that the masses will retain their power. And what you're describing, I mean, the, the scenario that you are pointing to uh, is one of fairly rapid technological progress. And, and it really doesn't matter whether we're talking about 50 years or, or 150 years. Uh, the, there is a social arrangement that has been around for a long time, for centuries or decades, and they change relatively slowly. So mm -hmm. uh, the, what you bring to my mind as I hear you is a major disconnect between uh, rapid uh, technological change and, and quite rigid cultural and social arrangements that will not keep up, actually. Mm. Yes, this is one of the big dangers, one of the big problems with technology is it, 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 it develops much faster than human society and human morality. And this creates a lot of, of tension. But again, I think we can try and learn something from our previous experience in, with the Industrial Revolution of the 19th century that actually you saw very rapid changes in society uh, not as fast as the changes in technology, but still amazingly fast. The most uh, obvious example is the collapse of the family and of the intimate community and their replacement by the state and the market. Basically, for the whole of history, humans lived as part of these small and very uh, important units the family and the intimate community, say 200 people who are your village, your tribe, your neighborhood, you know basically everybody, they know you. You may not like them, but your life depends on them. They, are, they provide you with almost everything you need in order to survive. They are your uh, health care, they are your pension fund, there is no pension fund, you have children, they are your pension fund, they are your bank, your school, your police, everything. If you lose your family and intimate community, you're dead. Or you have to find a replacement family. Uh, this was a situation for hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. Even once history started, say 70,000 years ago, and you see all the changes and agriculture and cities and empires and religions, you don't see any, any significant change on that level. Even in the year, say, 1700, people are st most people in the world still live as part of families and intimate communities which provide them with most, most of what they need in order to survive. And you could have even easily imagined when the Industrial Revolution begins, that this will continue to be the situation. You could easily, if you were, say, an evolutionary psychologist back in 1800, and you saw the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, you could have very confidently said, you can, all these changes in technology are well and, well and good, but they <coughs> won't change the basic structure of human society that it is built from these small building blocks, the family and the intimate community, because this is kind of an evolutionary given. Humans must have this. They cannot live in any other way. 
And you look at the last 200 years and you see the collapse. After millions of years of, 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 of evolution, suddenly, within 200 years, the family and the intimate community break, they, they collapse. Most of the roles are <coughs> filled by the family and by the intimate community for thousands and tens of thousands of years are transferred very quickly to new networks provided by the state and the market. You don't need children, you can have a pension fund. You don't need somebody to take care of you. You don't need neighbors and, 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 and sisters or brothers to take care of you when you're sick. The state takes care of you. The state provides you with police, with education, with health, with everything. And people, you can say that maybe life today is in, in, in some ways worse than in 1700 because we have lost much of the connection to the community around us. It's a big argument. But it happened. People today actually manage to live, and many people, as isolated, alienated individuals in the most advanced societies. Many people live as alienated individuals with no community to speak about, with a very small family. It's no longer the big uh, uh, extended family. It's now a very small family, maybe just, maybe just a spouse, maybe one or two children, and even they, they might live in a different city, in a different country, and you see them maybe once in every few months, and that's it. And the amazing thing is that people live with that. So, and that's just 200 years. So what might happen in the next 100 years on that level of daily life, of intimate relationships, I think anything is possible. You look at Japan today, and Japan is maybe 20 years ahead of the world in, in everything, and you see all these new social phenomenon of, of people having relationships with virtual uh, virtual spouses, and you have people who never leave the house and, and just live through computers. And I don't know, maybe, maybe it's the future, maybe it isn't, but for me the amazing thing is that you would have thought, given the biological background of, of humankind, that this is impossible. Yet we see that it is possible. Apparently Homo sapiens is even more malleable than, than, than we tend to think. Some, some scholars, some experts think that uh, agriculture was the biggest mistake in human history in terms of what it did to the individual. It's obvious that on the collective level, agriculture enhanced the power of humankind in an amazing way. It, without agriculture, you cannot have cities and, and kingdoms and empires and, and so forth. But if you look at it from the viewpoint of the individual, then for many individuals, life was probably much worse as peasants in ancient Egypt than as hunter-gatherers uh, 20, 30,000 years earlier. You had to work much harder. Uh, the body and mind of Homo sapiens evolved for millions of years in adaptation to climbing trees and picking fruits or to running after gazelles and looking for mushrooms. And once suddenly you start all day digging canals and carrying water buckets from the river and harvesting the corn and grinding the corn, this is much more difficult for the body and also much more boring uh, uh, to the mind. In exchange for all this hard work, most peasants got a far worse diet than hunter-gatherers uh, because hunter-gatherers relied on dozens of species of animals and plants and mushrooms and whatever that provided them with all the nutrients and vitamins they needed, 
whereas peasants relied on usually just on a single crop, like wheat or rice or, or potatoes. And on top of that, you had all the new social hierarchies and the beginning of mass exploitation, where you have small elites exploiting everybody else. So putting all this together, I think there is a good case to be said for the idea that uh, for the individual, agriculture was perhaps the biggest mistake in history. Uh, this may provide us with a, a lesson or at least something to think about with regard to the uh, new technological revolutions. Nobody would uh, doubt that all the, the new technologies uh, will enhance again the collective power of humankind. But the question we should be asking ourselves is what's happening on the individual level? We have enough evidence from history that you can have a very big uh, step forward in terms of collective power coupled with a step backwards in terms of individual happiness, individual suffering. So we need to ask ourselves about the new technologies emerging at present, not only how are they going to impact the collective power of humankind, but also how are they going to impact the daily life of individuals. In terms of, you know, even the Middle East and ISIS and all that, I think this is just a speed bump on, on, on history's uh, highway. I mean, the, the Middle East is not very important. Silicon Valley is, is much more important. The, the world of the 21st century, even, I'm not speaking only about technology, in terms of ideas, in terms of religions, the most interesting place today in the world, in religious terms, is Silicon Valley. It's not the Middle East. This is where the new religions are being created now by people like Ray Kurzweil. And this, these are the religions that will take over the world, not the things coming out of uh, Syria and Iraq and, and Nigeria.